And what we're going to see is uh, God starts with people wherever they're at. And as he works in their life, you begin to see transformations in their life. But you don't always see them like super fast. We read fast. And bios in the Bible are condensed, you know, so you can see the beginning of their life on the one page and the end of the life on the other page, and you don't realize there's a huge amount of space in between that. It's like when you go to a funeral home uh, or a graveyard and you see the headstones, right? And the headstone says they were born in this year and they died in this year, and the only thing that you see in between is a dash. But you don't realize that dash has a lot in it, right? And so if we're not willing to examine the dash, you're going you're gonna to miss a lot there. And so in what, some ways what we're looking at is the lives of three people. And we're going to look at the dash. <laughs> we're going to look at the, where they started and where they ended up. We're going to begin in Genesis 44, 23 through 34. The Bible says, then he said to his servants, uh, uh, this is Joseph after he's already been uh, made second in charge to Pharaoh, and his brothers had come to buy grain, and they don't recognize him. And so he's kind of putting them through a test. And Joseph said to, uh, he, you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. So the brothers went back, did what he did. They're now reporting back to him. It says, when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And see, that was the test that he had put on the brothers. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring it back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So this is basically Judah, and Judah is the fourth son that was born to Jacob, and he is interceding before the servant of Pharaoh, one of the high officials, who he does not know is his brother Joseph. And it highlighted to me, as I was reading this story, the progression of his character through the events that occurred in his life. What we see in him, we'll also see in a few others tonight as well. God was working through his circumstances, bringing about a change in him, as well as the others that we're going to look at. The evidence of God's touch became visible through the changes in their perspectives and subsequently revealed in how they act. So Judah here, and we're going to look at him first, moves from being an instigator to being an intercessor. Okay, so now you're going to see that I like to play with words and follow certain letters. And so that's why I use the word I here, instigator to intercessor. Jacob, uh, who is Judah's father and Joseph's father, had actually, uh, even though he was the father of what became the 12 tribes of Israel, his 12 sons, 
uh, <clears throat> he showed favoritism towards Joseph when they were when Joseph was young, and in doing that, he created an atmosphere in his family among his sons that created a hatred between them for the one that Jacob favored, and that was Joseph, okay? In uh, Genesis 37 and 4, it says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him, Joseph, and could not speak peaceably to him. So when given the chance, Judah, who as we saw in our text was interceding for Benjamin, the other brother that he had to go get. And you've got to read the story to really grasp it. Judah, at this point, was at the forefront of Joseph's demise. See, at first, the brothers wanted to kill Joseph, but Judah took the opportunity when it arose to convince the brothers to sell Joseph to a caravan of Ishmaelites that was passing their way. It's really a fascinating story. Uh, uh, the brothers had gone to, to uh, take care of some flocks in a distant uh, territory. Jacob wanted to know what was going on. They didn't have cell phones back then, didn't have text messaging, didn't have all that, so he had to send his son Joseph. Joseph went to look for him. Uh, when he found him, they saw him at a distance, and they hated him. They wanted to kill him. They threw him in a pit with the intent of killing him. That's how much they hated him. Uh, Reuben, uh, one of the older brothers, wanted to save him, but he couldn't do it. Judah took advantage of the opportunity, and he saw a caravan of Ishmaelites, which were traitors, uh, not traitors as betraying you, but traitors as in the sense of import, export, those kind of things. And he said, hey, why, why don't we just make some money on them and sell them, and we get rid of them, and we get a little bit of money in return, right? So Judah was the instigator. In Genesis 37, 25 to 28, it says, they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother. I, I, I like, kind of like, he is our brother, after all, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, lifted him up out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Now, while at their time, the immediate concern for the brothers, as well as for Judah, was alleviating their pain, they, when they came up with this plan, and specifically Judah, did not consider the pain it would bring his father. You know, most of the time when you come up with a plan, you don't really consider all the intricacies of how is this going to affect somebody else, what's, gonna, what's it going to do to them. And so uh, when they, they went back to Jacob, they didn't tell Jacob that they sold their brother. They told Jacob, they had to come up with a plan. Why is Joseph not with us? Well, he got eaten by a lion. How do you know that? Because we found his uh, uh, robe. See, they had torn his robe off him, and they mixed it with some blood. And it said, we found his robe. We think he was eaten by a lion. So they were lying, right? But here's the thing. It says in Genesis 37, 34 through 35, Jacob tore his garments, put his sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. 
All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. Now, apparently, this event that Judah witnessed and to which Judah had to harbor the pangs of guilt was something that Judah didn't want to take place in his life or in the life of his father ever again. So when the brothers met up with Joseph again, and it was about 19 years later, Joseph had become a ruler over Egypt. Not knowing it was Joseph, the brothers were led into a situation directed by Joseph himself that would once again give them the opportunity to reveal their willingness or unwillingness to eliminate a brother to save themselves. However, this time, instead of Judah availing himself of the opportunity to uh, get rid of his younger brother so that they can save and preserve their own lives, this time, instead of being the instigator, he became, became the intercessor. Okay, Genesis 44, 33 through 34. Now, therefore, he says to, and I think he's talking to Joseph, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please, he's begging him, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. You know what he's saying here? He said, take me. When he was younger, you know what he said? Take him. Not realizing the pain he would bring to his father, not realizing the pain it brought to himself, right? And so he had another opportunity. And in this opportunity, he said, I don't want to ever go through that again. He said, no, no. He said, I, I don't want to be the cause of that anymore. I want you to take me instead. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Whereas before, he was just concerned with what it was going to do to him. I hate this guy. I want him out of my life. And I'm going to take whatever opportunity I can to get him out of my life. And then he realized later on, oh, my gosh, what did I do? Look at my dad. He, I thought he'd just get over it. You know, it, it, it's just when we're younger, again, we don't think about the consequences. But if you let the Lord work in your life, God will work in your life to bring maybe something in your life that was missing when you were younger. He wants you to become more like him as we grow more in the Lord. If we're the same people we were when we were younger, we've got to question our relationship with God. We shouldn't be the same. We should be changing. We should be better persons as we get older in God than when we first began. Right? It's unfortunate, but religion will oftentimes make us worse and think we're better relationship may make us think that we're worse when we're actually better. There are, there are times I look in my life, I mean, there are things that I did when I was younger that I would think were, compared to where I'm at right now, pretty bad. I just kind of went off with it. Now I'll 
do some things. I'll sometimes just say a little, little really curt word, you know, and I thought, oh, man, I can't believe I said I, I can't go to sleep unless I, I, t- I got to say I'm sorry. I got to do this, you know. And I, I mean, it doesn't mean I don't fight it because we still have a little flesh in us. But what I was said when I was younger compared to what I said I was when I was older is nothing. But at the same time, now that I'm older, I feel the weight of it more than I did when I was younger. Right? Because I want to be like him. I want, I want his life to be reflected in my life. And not just when I come to church. Everywhere I go, I want to be more like him. That's why I don't spend time with him to become like him. But as I spend time with him, I find that I become more like him. And that's, that's what happens with us as people. You see, uh, we're growing as a church, but I, I tell people all the time, it's not, I'm thankful for the growth and I, I like the growth, but I'm more concerned that God's people grow. Right? I, I want it to be said about his people. I, I, want, I want us to become more Christ-like. I don't want us to be the talk of the town that, you know, those people, they, they have a lot of people in church that go to church, but they're just as mean or meaner than anybody else. They go eat after church, and they don't tip, and they're mad, and they're demanding, and all that kind of stuff. He said, I don't see God in that. Right? They get, I know those people that go to the church, that church, they, they sleep around just as much as the people that don't go to church. They get divorced just as much as the people that don't go to church. Now listen, if you divorced or anything like that, there's nothing, God forgives, we're not saying that. I'm just saying is that there should be a difference in God's people. We're not perfect, but we should be growing to become more and more like him. And we should be a reflection of him whenever we, we grow up. And that's what we see happening in, in, uh, in Judah's life. And this is Old Testament. This is before the, the Spirit of God resided in his people. We have the Spirit of God living in us. But what do I have to do to become more like him? We've got to yield. We've got to crucify the flesh. Right? And some of us have more flesh than others. Hey, don't look around. <laughs> we just got through eating. Huh? All right. Second person we want to look at. Now we want to move and look at Joseph. Joseph moves from being a provoker to a provider. All right? Joseph himself, also in the Bible, reveals a measure of growth in his life. The Bible says in Psalms 105, 17 through 19, he said, God sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what God had said about him came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The word translated test in this verse can also be translated as refined. And so the word of God was refining Joseph's character. Because refining is like, it's like putting impure gold into a furnace and the impurities come to the top. And what do you do when the impurities come to the top? You scrape them off so you have a more pure version of that goal. Well, that's kind of what we're talking about here. The word of the Lord was working in him, refining him, 
refining his character. Because you see, in the beginning of the story, we see that Joseph, although he was favored and gifted by God and by his father, was not himself without his faults. He was a provoker, in my opinion. He was a provoker. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So, first of all, if you know somebody doesn't like something, why are you going to keep doing it? Because he's a younger brother. That's what they do. I had a younger brother. He'd come over there and he'd poke on me. I said, stop it. Poke on me. Stop it. Poke on me. And finally, I hit him back. He said, Mom, Dad. It's not uncommon. Joseph was a younger brother as well. I'm sure he was doing that, you know. He, he was just, he was a person. Did he have favor in his life? Yes, of course, but he was still a person. And he said to his brothers, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. And Now listen, Joseph's gift was not that he dreamed. Joseph's gift was the ability to interpret dreams. Right? I can tell you a dream. Anybody can tell you a dream. We all, in some sense, from time to time dream. But he would have dreams from God, and then he knew how to interpret them. And so he didn't just say, hey, this. He actually told them, I believe, you're going to bow down to me one day. How do you know that? Because he says his brother said to him, are you going to reign over us? See, the Bible doesn't give you every word. It just kind of gives you the gist of the story. Or are you going to rule over us? Where'd they get that idea? Because he told them is what the dream means. One day you're going to bow down before me and I'm going to rule over you. And so what? They hated him even more. Not, you see, you've got to read it. Not for just his dreams, but for his words. Right? So he was adding. He was provoking, right? Because of what I believe was his youthful pride and untested favor, Joseph did not understand the favor that God had placed upon his life. Positions of, not, of responsibility was not placed on, upon individuals to elevate the individual, but to take care of the people that were placed under that individual that God had favored and put his spirit upon. Joseph apparently learned this through his ordeals in Egypt because he moved from being a provoker, and remember what I said, the dash, you don't always realize how much time there is between the dash, but remember, 19 years have passed from the time that Joseph was sold into Egypt to the time that his brothers are before him. So let's get back to that same story, but look at on Joseph's side. Now here is uh, Joe, Judah's pleading to Joseph, and, uh, and Joseph says this in Genesis 45, 4 through 13. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, and now I'm going to kill you. Is that what he said? How many of us have ever consoled ourselves with the idea that if I ever get to a place where I can pay them back, I'm going to show them? That's just human nature. Yeah, I'm going to show you. I'm going to, I'm going to, and as soon as I get the chance, I'm going to let everybody know what you did. And I'm going to let everybody know how I was right and you were wrong. But God. But God. And he says to them, and now... Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. They did. Because if you look at the bigger picture, God sent me here before you to preserve life. Not just my life, but your life 
and not just my life and your life, but the life of all these Egyptians as well. You see, God doesn't just care about Joseph. He does. But he cares about Joseph's family. But you think that's all he cares about? You think it's just me and this church? No. God cares about Egypt. How do you know? Because he sent him to Egypt. Joseph didn't just preserve the family. He preserved the nation of Egypt. Because if he hadn't had the one in the place where he could have interpreted the dream, because none of the people in Egypt could interpret the dreams. God was letting people know what was coming. But unless you had somebody there that could figure out what God was saying, that nation of Egypt was going to go through a path famine and many, many people were going to die. But because there was someone that, that understood and was in a position to hear from God, and Joseph could have said, I'm not taking care of y'all. Y'all put me in prison. I ain't doing nothing for y'all. When Pharaoh said, you know what the dream means? Yeah, you're going to die. But he didn't do that. You know why? Because in that little dash, God was working on Joseph. He was speaking to Joseph. He was showing Joseph a different perspective out of what the pain he went through and how he could make a difference in somebody's life. Not by being the same, but by being more like him. And Joseph goes on to say, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler of all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children and your flock and your herds and all that you have, and there I will provide for you. You think about these. These are the people that sold him to Egypt. These are the people that wanted to kill him. And he said, no, I'm in a position where I could take your life, but I don't want to do that. I want to take care of you because I see what God has done in me and through me, I see the bigger picture, and I was sent here for you. See, this position that was given to me, it wasn't for me, it was for you. Remember what I was telling you before? Well, I want to do what you do. Do you want to do it for you? Or do you want to do it for the people that God wants to teach and minister through you to, to, towards them? See, it's all about perspective. That's why you have to be faithful in little before you can be faithful in much. Because you learn how to serve in the little. But that serving continues as you get more and more responsibility. That same heart that you learn in the little is what, what continues with you as you go more and more into different levels of responsibility. Because Joseph had to learn how to serve when he was in Potiphar's house as a slave. And then he had to continue to learn how to serve when he was in the prison as a convict. But when he got out, what did he do? What he did in Potiphar's house and what he did in the prison, he did as he became ruler over Egypt. He served. You know, the word deacon actually means servant. It doesn't mean an official. It means someone who serves. Because ministry, and by the, word, by the way, the word ministry is a derivative of the word 
translated deacon because deacon is ministering. It means to serve, right? So sometimes we look at a deacon and we say, oh, man, those people are, are officials in the church or this and this. Well, we honor deacons. We honor them. But the reason they're in that position is because they've been serving, right? We recognize that you're a servant, and we would like you to serve more. We'd like you to serve more people. But if you think a deacon is about having prestige or position or power, you know, then, then your heart's not right. You're going to have that, but that's not what it's for. It's to be able to serve, right? And that's what every position is. Even the apostles and the prophets, they were having problems in Acts chapter 6. It's not in there, Jimmy, but in Acts chapter 6, they were having problems in the church. Uh, uh, there was still racial divides in the church. Um, but in this case, it wasn't so much racial as much as it was uh, cultural. You had uh, Jews that spoke Hebrew and Jews that spoke Greek, and the Hebrew-speaking Jews, they consider themselves more uh, Jewish than the ones that spoke Greek. The ones that spoke Greek, they were kind of not, they were sort of watering down their heritage and stuff. So anyway, when they were passing out food to the widows, they would give it to all the ones that spoke Hebrew first, and the ones that the Hellenistic widows, the ones that spoke Greek, they would go last. And it seems like every time they ran out, it was always the Hellenistic uh, uh, widows that were running out that didn't get food. And so they brought it to the apostles and they said, something needs to be done about this. And they prayed about it. And they said, you're right, something needs to be done, but it's not our positions to do something about it. Not that we can't, you gotta, you gotta read the, 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 the gist of it. It's not that they're too uh, big or too high or mighty to be able to do that, but they basically said, look, we have a ministry. That word ministry is the same word for what deacons do, but our ministry is to preach and to uh, proclaim the word. I mean, to, to, to pray and to preach. That's our service. That's how we serve the church. Other people, they serve the church, but their service is to take care of this ministry here with the widows. It looks different, but the heart is the same. What they do is the same. They're just going to do it in different ways, right? And so what they had to do is they had to get more people involved in serving the church. And in this particular instance, serving the church. But we're not just raising up people here just to serve in the church. We need people to serve in the church. We want everyone to be raised up and realize everyone has a ministry. Everyone's to serve somewhere, but it may not be in the church. It could be in the world. The job that you have is a place to serve. Well, I never looked at it that way. I just looked at it as a place to get a little extra money. Well, you know, it, I'm sure Joseph had a lot of perks being the second in charge of Egypt, but he understood that the reason he was there was to serve. The perk when you have a job is the, 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 the you know, the, um, the retirement or the extra income or the you know, the, the insurance benefits or whatever, whatever it is that you get on top of that. There's nothing wrong with that. God does give that to us. But primarily, your job is a place to serve. Well, I never looked at it that way. You might find that your life transforms depending on how you look at things. You see, that's what's happening here. Their lives are transforming based on how they look at things. Oh, I got more power. Now I can get back at them. No, God's given you more power so that you can help them. The very people that hit me, what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
the very people that crucified him, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay. While Joseph did set up the situation as a test to see where the brothers were at in their lives to reveal whether their hearts had changed, Joseph himself recognized, whether they did or not, that behind his life and behind his promotion was the welfare of the very family, the very brothers that had sold him into slavery. And he was sent to preserve life, not to take life. One more. You got time for one more? How about Jacob himself? Jacob is the father of Judah. Jacob is the father of Joseph. Let's look at him. Jacob moves from being a deceiver to a declarer. All right? So there's another character in this story that I'd like to bring out, and that is the account of Jacob. Jacob, although chosen by God, also found his outlook, his perspective in life changing as he grew older. Remember, we're talking about that little dash between being born and dying, and there's a lot that happens if you allow God to do that within that little dash that can change not only your life, but the life of those around you. Through his life, through the things he faced and the things he encountered, Jacob experienced a growth in his character that was revealed in the final moments of his earthly life. To truly grasp the change, we've got to go back to Jacob's deception in seeking to take the blessing that he thought he would be going to his brother Esau. Genesis 27, 6 through 10, uh, uh, J uh, Isaac had actually told Esau, the older brother, even though they're twins, he was older by a couple of minutes, <laughs> but he was still the older brother. They knew it. They tied it. They, they made sure they knew who the older brother was, Esau. And Isaac said, I want to I bless you. You know, uh, when he was talking about that, I want to go ahead and, and make you the heir, you know, to my stuff. So Rebecca heard it, and she said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me some game, because he had told Esau to go hunt and bring him back some stew, and he would bless him. Bring me some game and prepare me, me delicious, delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, Rebecca says to Jacob, her son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock, bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. He said, in other words, we're going to see Isaac was nearly blind at this time, so he couldn't see. So we're going to deceive your father. And you're going to get the blessing because I know God wants you to have the blessing and you're going to get the blessing and we're going to make sure that you get it and not, not the other way around. So, and then it says in 22 through 24, Jacob went near to his Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy's. <laughs> I can tell you, Esau, how'd you like to be married to Esau if you're a woman? It's like they had to put skins of, of uh, goats on his uh, goat skins or lamb skins on his arm, goat skins, right? Cabrito, right there. So anyway, they had to put goat skins on his arm so that he could deceive his father. That was a hairy dude, man. Probably bald, too. So <laughs> Anyway, oh, by the way, they're, they're about, I think I did the math on this. They're somewhere around 77 years old. Yeah, they're not, you know, but they lived longer back then, right? So I think when they're born, they were 50. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, <laughs> so anyway, um, as so he didn't recognize the hand. I mean, he, he didn't recognize him as being uh, Isaac. And so he blessed them. And he said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, yes, I am. <laughs> so he came near and kissed them. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments, blessed them and said, see, the smell of my son is of the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. So Jacob thought he was stealing the blessing from Esau. But what we find is that Jacob did not trust God to move through his father. 
but felt that to get ahead with God, he had to take matters into his own hands. Jacob, however, changed after he had an encounter himself with God. Now, I'm going to tell you why this is important. We've got to go a little bit farther, and I'm going to show you why this is important. See, Jacob felt like, and Rebekah felt like they had to deceive Isaac because if they didn't intervene, then Isaac was going to bless Esau and everything was lost. They didn't believe in the supernatural power of God. They didn't believe in the guidance of God. They didn't believe that God could intervene. But what we're going to find is that in a similar situation later on in life, what Jacob could not believe for in this particular situation, we're going to find that if he had trusted God, <coughs> excuse me, God probably and could have done the same thing as we'll see here in a minute. But first, Genesis 32, 24 through 28, Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put, up, hip was put out of a joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, deceiver, heel grabber. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. We see that at this particular time, he was wrestling with God. And he was actually wrestling with God to preserve his life again. Because his brother Esau was coming to meet him, and he was sure that Esau was going to kill him. Because 20 years earlier, when he left, he was running from Esau uh, uh, so that Esau wouldn't take his life, because his mother overheard that he was comforting himself by saying, I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. So anyway, he was wrestling with God to preserve his life. But as he was wrestling with God, something changed in Jacob. He got a new name. Let's see, as we learned before, a new name is not just a different way of calling you the same person that you are. It actually embraces and it gives you a new identity. And see, his name was no longer Jacob, deceiver. His name was now Israel, which means prince with God or one who wrestles with God and overcomes. How do you overcome by wrestling with God? When you let God, when you wrestle with God, he's going to expose your weakness. And when he exposes your weakness, see, he got touched in the hip of his, you know what that's like. You, you, you hurt here, you can't push, you can't, all you can do is hold on. And see, what happens is when we're Jacobs, and I know what it's like to be a Jacob. My middle name is James, which is, comes from, the, it's actually Jaime, which is, comes in the English, it's James, which comes from the, uh, the origin of that is Jacob, which means deceiver and heel grabber. And basically, in my life, a lot, I wanted, I knew what God wanted to do for me. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to get after it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to get after it. You know, and come to realize that I was really my own worst enemy. Because in trying to make it happen, I actually messed things up worse than if I had just let God do it. But see, I had to learn how to die to that. Now, have I completely died to that? I don't know. I can't tell you that I have, you know, but I, I'm, I'm not the same person that I was. And Jacob wasn't the same person that he was after this encounter. See, what happened was the angel of the Lord touched his hip, and now he couldn't fight anymore. All he could do was hold on. And you see... Really, that's what changes us when we stop fighting with God and start holding on to God. And he became, in that moment, Israel, prince with God. 
Now, how did this change his life? Well, Genesis 48, 17 through 20, when he was about to die, he wanted to bless his ch- uh, grandchildren because what because he had lost Jake, he had lost Joseph for many years. Jacob got to a place where he said, "Your children will become my children because I lost that time with you. They're going to become part of my family." And so he was going to bless them. And so when J- Joseph, uh, realizing his father was getting old, he, was, he brought his sons to be blessed by his father. When he saw that his uh, father, uh, uh, it says here in the text, had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. So what happened was, um, when he got in front of uh, Jacob, Joseph had positioned his sons. Let's see. Let's say I'm Jacob. Joseph had positioned his sons because the blessing, the greater blessing in in the Hebrew understanding or the mindset or culture was always with the right hand. So he put Manasseh, the older son, in front of his father's right hand. And he put Ephraim, the younger son, in front of his father's left hand. Why? So then when he stretched out his hands, he would do what he was supposed to do, which was to put the greater blessing on the older because you're supposed to give a double blessing to the older and the younger one gets the blessing too, but it's not the same as the older. That's what Jacob and Esau were fighting for, remember? What happens? He sets everything up the way it's supposed to be. And Jacob goes, whoop. And Joseph said, no, no. That's not what you're supposed to do. You see, Jacob couldn't trust God to do that in his father Isaac. But had he trusted God, it's very possible that Isaac, wanting to bless Esau, would have gone, Roop. but he couldn't trust God to do that. So he took matters into his own hands. Now, God was able to work through his life and do some stuff in his life. But remember, Jacob has changed now, right? And so... Uh, whenever he went to pray for him, he went whoop, and he put the right hand on the head of the younger child and blessed the younger child ahead of the older child. Joseph is, no, no, he's thinking to himself, Dad, you're, you're blind, you're not, you, you can't see, you're, you're messing it up, don't do it that way. But his father, he said, not this way, Father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. Because so, even though he's blind... God's not. And he says, He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall be a multitude of nations. And so he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So again, do you see that at the moment of blessing, Jacob's hands and his blessings were guided by God? He couldn't see that when he was younger and his eyes were sound. But now that he was older and blind in the natural, it seems he could see it spiritually as his trust in God had strengthened. And he moved from being a deceiver to a declarer. So uh, I hope you see as we wrap this up that God was at work in the lives of these men and that their walk with God changed them for the better. And what does that say to us? As long as we continue walking with God... God, who is the same yesterday and today and forever, seeks to do the same with us. Psalms 37, 23 says, The steps of a good man are are ordered by the Lord, and he delights 
in his way. Philippians 1 and 6, being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 1 John 3, 2 through 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. In Romans 8, 28 through 30, And we know that for those whom, God, whom love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, see, we like to quote that verse, but it's really the next verse that gives meaning to this verse. See, we think everything's going to work out to good. Well, what does good look like? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So what is the good that he's working us towards? Not that you will never experience pain or you will never experience unjust treatment or you... But in the middle of it all, his good is that in the end, you will be like Jesus. And when someone who's hurt you in the past, now you have an opportunity to hurt them because you're becoming more like Jesus instead of turning around and using your opportunity to hurt them, you use it as an opportunity to do good to them. Instead of working to try to get God to do what I want and make sure that I get everything that God's supposed to do in my life, you get to a place where you trust the Lord and you realize that with God, I can do all things. And if I just trust him, I get a lot farther ahead in my life than if I try to make it happen on my own. Or like with Judah, who at the very beginning of his life was really just concerned about himself. After all the stuff that he went through, he began to realize that life is bigger than me. And you know, life is, in this culture that we live in, it's really all about me. Me, myself, and I. I want to be happy. I'm not happy, so... I'm going to change things so I can be happy. And You know what? As long as you're feeding ego and self, you're never going to be truly happy. Because Jesus said, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Sometimes in order to truly experience joy, you've got to go through some stuff. You've got to endure some things. You've got to die to some things. You've got to deny yourself that others may receive the benefit of what you are not availing yourself of. Why? Because in doing that, we become more like him. In order that he might be the firstborn among many, this is brothers, but another translation says brethren. We're all part of the brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So I don't know where you started. I don't know where you're at, but life isn't done yet. You're still in that dash. You still got time, you know, to let God work in your life. Let God change you. Maybe you've messed up over and over and over again. It's not the end yet. Let him have his way. Die to yourself. And submit to him and let him work things out in your life and once you let go and let God and I'm not talking to people that don't know Christ I'm talking to Christians 
Let go and let God. Well, I did that when I got saved. No, you began when you got saved. But it's a process that goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on until you get to that day when that last date is put on your tombstone. But that's not the end because then we transfer from this life to the next. And what we did in that little dash gets rewarded in heaven and then we can take those rewards and say, Lord, it's all about you. It's all about you.